Man, it's so good to see so many people in here. Comparatively speaking, this is a lot of people over the last several weeks. And uh, thank you all for being here today. Thank you for those of you that are home joining us online. Uh, man, it's just a joy and a, and a pleasure to be here. I want to also offer a special word of thanks to, to Brad for being here today to fill in for Matt while Matt is out of town. And just a uh, great job, brother, as always. Truly appreciate it. You know, um, one of the things that I would uh, offer up as we look at that uh, intro to this, this series that we've been going through in Ephesians and that tagline or that subline that says, From Death to Life, uh, just how that really does accentuate the contrast that you see so frequently in the book of Ephesians, right? I mean, it's, it is this message of, of transformation that truly does take someone from death to life. That, that's the essence of the gospel, right? It, it's, it's old being made new, and, and it's this reminder that at its core, the gospel is really about change and, and a significant change. And so I have a question I want to present to you all this morning that I want you to be reflecting upon through the course of this morning, this week, whatever the Lord kind of leads you in. But I'm curious, what has changed in your life or how has your life changed as a result of knowing Christ? Like what, what kind of changes could you point to? What, what would you be able to, to offer up as evidence that you've seen transformation as a result of knowing Christ? Jesus Christ. You know, when you think about change, I think a lot of times we have different reactions to it. On, on one hand, we welcome it and we celebrate it and we believe in it, right? We, we think about uh, the way we see people change with their personalities, the way they change with their work habits or, or whatever it may be. We, we see changes in society. We see uh, progress among civilizations, right? We see change in a lot of positive lights that make us celebrate. How good is that? Right? I can't tell you the last time we've heard a sound like that in here, so thank you. I love it. But we see positive changes that we want to celebrate and that we're grateful for, but then at the same time, there are times where we have conversations about change that we might be skeptical of or be resistant. And we think about somebody and we go, oh, you know, that person's never going to change. Or we think about challenges that we face in society, or we think about things that may uh, be threatening uh, cultural progress, and we think, you know, these things are never going to change. And, and so we kind of have this love-hate relationship with, with change in general. And the reason I bring that up is because when you ask the question of how knowing Christ has changed your life, I believe that more than, than anyone, the gospel and believers should understand the value and the importance of change. And we are living in a context, in a time right now, where change is ever-present around us. Right? You think about uh, what the quarantine, the pandemic has done to us, it changed everything about life, and we've had to adapt to it. You think about the demonstrations that are going on in our country right now as a response to, to racial injustice and racism and the call to change, right? We have all these things pressing in around us to, to have to respond to change, and a lot of times that love-hate relationship doesn't really tell us which way to go. And part of what we need to see is that as the church— if there's ever to be a people that should feel comfortable and be advocates and believers for change, it's us, right? It's the church. It's those who understand its power. But it's not just that we are familiar with it, but I believe society and the world needs the voice of the church, needs the ambassadors who understand change, because we hopefully, as a result of the gospel, understand how change becomes enduring, right? How it becomes 
long-lasting. And that's the sort of change that we really need. So I, I think about, uh, you know, the way that I parent. And I think about children in the times that you have to correct their behavior. And you see them engage in some uh, conduct that is not condoned in our home. Don't hit your sister. Don't say that to your brother. And I know I can make them change almost immediately. I can get them to change their behavior by just taking away a privilege. Right? That's it. No more TV. No more uh, desserts. No more video games. Whatever. And the behavior changes. And, and, and that will work. And I know that at some point they will work harder towards not engaging in that behavior again because they want to make sure that they keep, they keep those privileges. So I know I can get behavioral change. But real change occurs within, right? That's the change that we need to be advocating. What, what a parent is after is not just behavioral change. They're after a change of the heart, right? What I really want for my children is to not want to hit your sister, not want to speak ill of your brother. Right? I, I want you to have a different sense in your very own heart. That's the sort of change that is needed. And too often when we go through life and we encounter things happening in our society or maybe even in our own walk with Christ, we can point to behavioral change that has missed heart change. And what is long-lasting, what is enduring, is a change that begins within and then carries itself out. That is the gospel. Right? And that's something that we're here to praise and celebrate is that when we come to know Jesus, what he does is he changes everything within us, right? We see the world differently. We begin to set aside selfish impulses, selfish desires, selfish pursuits, and all these different things that can so easily lead us astray. And all of a sudden, God sends his spirit and it does a work within us where all of a sudden we are filled with love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, faith, self-control, right? We see transformation of the heart that then produces the fruit of change in behavior, right? This is the gospel, that, that, that God sees us in our broken state and wants to take us from death to life. And so he sends Jesus, he takes on flesh, he dwells among us, he shows us the ways of mercy, he shows us the richness of his grace, and more than that, he shows us that he is the victor over death. And so he becomes our king. And that's where this heart transformation begins. It starts with love and devotion for our king. We see who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and we love him, and we devote ourselves to him. And then that produces loyalty and obedience. That's behavioral change. That's how change becomes enduring. Right, so we, we don't want to engage in a conversation with society or with ourselves without looking at both. You need them to go hand in hand. And that's exactly what the gospel does. It helps us be mindful of what Christ has done and how he is leading us into a new life. That's what we've been talking about throughout the course of this series. That's the, the essence of this letter to the church in Ephesus. And it's what we're going to be revisiting again today, but my hope and my prayer is that all of us would come in with that introspective spirit, because if you're really going to change your heart, you have to look within, right? Before we start looking for change from others or change in society, we have to look within, and, and that requires asking some harder questions. That requires a little bit more thoughtful introspection, but aren't you glad we serve a God who leads us in that journey and leads us in that process through the power of the gospel.
And so let's go to him. Let's spend some time praying to this God who changes the hearts and minds of men and women. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you, and we come here today eagerly expectant that your spirit would once again work within us. God, we lay ourselves bare before you and acknowledge that that we love you, we want to devote ourselves to you for all that you've done for us in Christ, God, and help that love and devotion yield a harvest of loyalty and obedience that, that manifests itself in a behavior that is loving of the neighbor, that is loving of others, God, and that we would be able to demonstrate in all seasons and all circumstances. Father, we know it's only by your power, it's only through the guidance of your word that these things are possible. And so we ask that you would now enrich that word as we study it, that you would make it living and active once again so that we can be changed and celebrate all that you've done for us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to keep moving right along through this series. Now, I will tell you that I was a little conflicted with today's message. Uh, I was a little hesitant to keep moving forward because if I can just be honest, the verses we're looking at today are not exactly what you would classify as the most uplifting of verses. And I, I can feel the weight of what's going on in our society. I'm sure I'm not alone in that, right? I mean, the, it's just the, the weight of, of unrest, the weight of global pandemics, all of it. And so everything, you know, uh, within me kind of wanted to just be like, hey, let's, let's just come in here and let's just celebrate. But, but I realized that, you know, these verses were placed on this day for a reason, you know, that they were spirit-led and that, that in order for us to truly overcome some of the challenges and circumstances that we face, be it as individuals or as a society, we have to be willing to do the hard work. We have to be willing to look at passages that are make us go, okay, let me, let me look within and, and let me see how God can exhibit heart change into behavioral change. And so that's, that's what we're going to have. Now, I'll, I will promise you, though, I'm not going to leave you hanging. There, there is an element that is uplifting and we will end with that because the gospel always points us to hope as well. But just on the front end, as you know, just keep in mind that these verses are a tougher teaching uh, today, and, uh, but they're necessary. They come right after what we talked about last week, which was an example of following God and, and walking in a way of love, right? That's, that was the picture. Have kindness, have compassion, walk in the way of love. And now what we have in verses 3 through 7 is essentially an antithesis to what that example would look like. Here are the things to not do. Don't walk this way. So picking up in chapter 5, verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Uplifted? Encouraged? Right? That's a fun one, isn't it? It's challenging. You can't can't, uh, negate the fact that Paul is direct. Right? He doesn't really beat around the bush. And this is something that he's really already kind of mentioned. If you go back to chapter 4 in, in verse 17, we're going to see how the context of this letter really kind of drives home a theme of what we've read. We, we've already seen in, in these verses 3 through 7 that a lot of things were referenced. But I would say there are at least three that kind of 
elevate themselves to the surface and that really reserve or require a point of emphasis for us this morning. We're going to talk about all of them, but we're going to pay more attention to three of them. And part of that is the context that you see in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, Paul is talking about transformation as well and being in a close relationship with God. And in verse 17, he says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They were darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, here it is, they've given themselves over to sensuality, to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Okay, so he's already mentioned those three things. Then you get to chapter 5, verses 3 through 7, and he references them again twice, right? So, so if there's going to be a point of emphasis based on this context, Paul is really trying to drive home, right, that we need to avoid sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, okay? And so... There's, there's some other things that we'll, we will also capture here in just a moment, but we need to at first acknowledge the seriousness and the weight to which Paul is giving these terms and make sure that we appropriately understand them so that we can have that sort of introspection in our own life. And so let's start with this, this first one of sexual immorality. Right? We, we have this term here, and it would be so nice if this was a term that was very specific, right? and it was very particular, and it was like, here's the, the exact manifestation of sexual immorality that you need to stay away from, that you need to avoid. But the reality is, is that this, this term is incredibly broad in general and basically encapsulates any expression of, of sexual immorality whatsoever. And the reason Paul is likely using a term so broadly is because of the context that you find within which this letter is written. In the Greco-Roman time period, sexual immorality was so pervasive and so prevalent. At this point, culture had really just kind of become indifferent Right? It was almost commonplace, almost accepted. And when you study just how prevalent it was at that point in time, you can see a pretty strong correlation to the culture that we live in today. Right? How prevalent the idea of sexual immorality is in our culture to the point that it's almost just kind of become commonplace. And it's just kind of tolerated. And at worst, in many situations, it's actually celebrated. And so this becomes a pretty necessary conversation for all of us. And so I, I could give you statistics, right, that would suggest prevalence and the harm and the damage. I didn't, I didn't feel led to do that this week. I didn't feel like that was, that was necessary. Uh, I'm just going to move in what I hope is an accurate assumption that all of us could probably acknowledge, yes, it's prevalent in our culture, and it's an issue, okay? And maybe there will be another setting and context where we can dive into those details, but what I want us to see is just how broad-reaching this issue really is, right? Because it could manifest itself with lust, right, in the way that, that we visually take in another person, be that through the media of a computer screen or a mobile phone or the person that sits across from you at work, right? Whatever avenue it is, we know that that lust and that impulse can uh, uh, typically be exposed to children as early as third and fourth grade and begins to just create this cycle of addiction in an impulse that really impacts them physiologically, that actually creates this barrier to even having any form of true, genuine, intimate relationship down the road. It's incredibly destructive and leads to maybe not just the lusting after images, but then an actual lifestyle of promiscuity, right? Where now we're, we're really just engaging in activity that is all about self-gratification rather than intimacy and relationship. And so you have promiscuity that begins to move, and then people try to have relationships, 
right? They try to come together, but now they're bringing all this baggage in with them, and it's already going to be difficult just in the context of marriage. And so now you have to deal with that baggage in marriage, and then marriages have weak moments too. And now you have infidelity, you have affairs, you have wanderings, you have all these, this trust that can be broken in a marriage. And not just for newlyweds, right, throughout the whole continuum. Here's my point, right? You've got a broad-reaching thing. It even goes into the issues of social justice, right? In the most horrific expression of it, you get to the point where people are actually kidnapped, bought, and sold to satisfy the sexual impulses of others, right? Like, this, this hits everything. It hits children. It hits if you're young and single. It, it hits if you're in adolescence, if you're married, if you're older, if you're younger, if you are passionate about social, it hits everything. So we have to be able to talk about it. We can't be secretive about it. We have to be willing to evaluate our own hearts. And so that's kind of a question for each of us today. Is there a trace of it in your life? Is there a trace of it that you could identify? And are you able to acknowledge that and confess it? You also have impurity. Now impurity could could reiterate this problem of sexual immorality, but it again is a broad term that really is not confined just to that one category, but really kind of is considered anything that would be classified as being filth or anything that would be considered to be unclean. And typically it was seen in three different categories. You saw it related to physical impurity, you saw it related to cultic impurity, or you saw it related to moral impurity, right? So physical impurity, especially if you're thinking about the Old Testament law, would be anything that would be related to your physical health. Maybe you had leprosy, Maybe you had some sort of condition that would be considered physically unclean. If you think about cultic impurity, that's, that's just another word for worship, right? In the way that you would approach worship in the temple. So uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, unclean meats, all those different things that you saw kind of develop in the Levitical law. You have moral impurities that could be anything that has an ethical bent to it. Don't lie, don't steal, don't get angry, don't get into drunkenness, don't get into vision, right? All these different things that would be considered moral impurities. So, so it can happen in any context. And the answer was, or the, the belief was, that when you engaged in that sort of uncleanness, it clung to you, right? Which is why you had all these purification laws and steps and ceremonies to, to try to be cleansed from it because it just stuck to you. And I think while we have moved beyond those purification laws today, many of us could still probably offer testimony to these impurities in our life that just stick to us, right? Maybe it's physical, maybe it's in worship, maybe it's in morality, but, but there are these habits, right, that we just cannot seem to undo, and they, they feel like they cling to us, right? So I think about this, this passage in Romans that talks a lot about how we were to follow Christ. And it talks about this contrast. Are you going to offer yourself to wickedness and unrighteousness, or are you going to offer yourself to righteousness? Right? And so one of the things we have to ask ourselves is to have an awareness of what it is that, that defiles, that is filthy, that is impure, that is not the way of God. And are we offering ourselves to those things? Or are we constantly coming before God saying, I'm going to offer myself to you and to your righteousness? Right? So you have impurity as well. Then the third one, greed. Now, what do you typically picture when you hear the word greed? You get an image? You get a picture in your head? If you're like me, you know what the image is that I get? I always think of Scrooge McDuck. 
I don't know why. I really do. Like, that's like my first image of Scrooge McDuck. It could be because my kids are really obsessed with DuckTales right now. Um, it could be because I just have an affinity for Mickey's Christmas Carol. I don't know, but I, I, I picture him just like counting money. And I think that's what most of us do is we have some sort of picture of wealth uh, that we attach to greed, be it somebody who's earned a lot of money or is continuing to pursue a lot of money. We, we attach it to finances, and rightly so, because that's a, a, a common and, and prevalent manifestation of it. But greed is, is much more profound than just the acquiring of wealth, right? It, it's actually much more destructive. When you look at the, the biblical definition of it, it is about acquiring more and gaining more, but also understanding that it is typically acquiring through the exploitation of others, right? So it's this, it's this mindset that you're willing to take advantage of another person, right? It's this mindset that you are willing to to go further to keep someone else down, to, to harm them in order to gain for yourself. And so really what we're talking about with greed is not just about our view or our thoughts of money and our finances, but really our view of our neighbor. And what are we willing to do to our neighbor to benefit ourselves? How, how far are we willing to go to take advantage of the marginalized, the oppressed, or somebody else that we know if it means that we get to preserve our own safety, our own security, our own luxuries, our own power. That's greed, right? So it's, it's a very profound uh, thing to avoid as well, which again leads us to that other question. Are there any traces of this in your life? How do you treat the neighbor in your pursuit of your own material, financial, spiritual gain? And what does it look like? Right, so we have these these broad categories that really hit on so many areas of life. Now, you also had these descriptions of sinity, foolish talk, um, and then coarse joking. And, and really what's happening here is, is kind of another throwback to chapter 4, 429, if you remember that part where, where Paul writes, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So, so basically he's, he's capturing that sentiment again. And so when, what you look at holistically in this summary is this list of vices that are very different from walking in the way of love where he's saying, listen, what your conduct and what you say should not demonstrate these things. It shouldn't uh, be in a contrary way to the way of love, to the example that God has set out for you. Here's what they look like, okay? And so we have this picture of how challenging they can be, of, of what they're defined by, but we need to be reminded of the cost that's associated with them, right? We need to see why they need to be avoided, why they're so terrible. And he gives us an answer. He says, for those that practice these things, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of Christ or of God. And that's where we kind of get taken back into this biblical narrative, this history. This word inheritance has been a part of the biblical narrative from the very beginning, right? If you think about God's calling of his people to give them a land, to establish a kingdom uh, for himself, where people love him, worship him, honor him, it was all based on an inheritance of a land, a promised land. And so part of understanding inheritance is understanding God has a plan. God has a purpose. Part of it is understanding that when they actually uh, received that land, portions were allotted to them, provided to them. So it's part of seeing God as a provider, not just sovereign, but that he has a specific way to provide for you, your needs, and according to what, you, uh, what his plan is for you and your life. Right? You have this, this idea of inheritance of actually being a part of this kingdom, being a part of these people who are going to belong to God. 
And so when Jesus comes in and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, it awakens all those desires and those emotions to inherit God's kingdom and to be a part of his people. And obviously what we begin to see, and we have the benefit being on this side of the cross, is that what God was actually accomplishing in Jesus was not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. And so now the inheritance that has been offered to you and me is not some earthly reign, but an eternal salvation to be with God forever. And what Paul just said is that if you have these things in your life, you will not receive that inheritance, right? Instead, you become a recipient of God's wrath. That's a hard teaching. And it's not one we typically like to point to because a lot of times we want to really emphasize just the, the goodness of God, the love of God, but we also have to understand the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God as well. And so let's make sure we understand it clearly. Here's what this passage is not saying. It is not saying you need to be perfect because I'm willing to bet Almost everyone in here and at home is a lot like me, and you could raise your hand being guilty of any of the things I've mentioned. So this is not, oh, you messed up? Sorry, you missed out, right? What we need to never lose sight of is the, the beauty of the gospel, right? The, <clears throat> excuse me. What Jesus does for us is he comes in and he says, I'll wash you white as snow. I'll cleanse you of all impurities. I'll cleanse you of immorality. I'll cleanse you of that greed. I, I will change you. I'll bring you from death to life. <clears throat> That's what Jesus does. <clears throat> I'll get it eventually. So he cleanses us, right? He cleanses us from all those things. And so we have an assurance that though we have had mistakes and will continue to have mistakes through Jesus, those mistakes are forgiven and we are able to dwell with him and participate in this inheritance. Think about King David, right? So with King David, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He had his mistakes, but he was also known as a man who was after God's own heart. And so part of what we see when we look at the biblical story is that this is not about behavior as much as it is about heart. If you have repentance, if you have a desire to move a new way, and it's not a perpetual offense, right, then you can see that you will understand God's mercy and his richness that allows you to participate in his inheritance. But a failure to have that repentance, right, a failure to actually desire obedience of God, a failure to actually demonstrate that devotion, well, that's where it becomes something much more egregious and serious. So here, here's what a lot of times I think what we do is we will have God, right, we'll We'll embrace the teaching, we'll embrace the message, and then we'll keep him right over here, right? And, and what we do is we continue to fixate on other things that we want. And we can say, but see, I have him with me, right? But here's what I really am still pursuing. And what we're doing is we're taking God off his throne, and we're making him just one of several things on our list. And what Paul is saying is that's idolatry, right? That, the reason you lose out on this inheritance is because the crime that's being committed here is idolatry, right? And idolatry at its core is anything that forces us or leads us to take God off his throne and put something else there in its place. It's not just about carving a golden calf. It's not about just some statue. It's anything that minimizes God's place in our life. 
right? And so typically what we do when we take God off his throne is we put ourselves in his place. That's what we really like to do. Because what we really like to do is be able to sit from our position of authority and say, okay, well, here's about how I would define sexual immorality. Here's what I think is okay, and here's what I think is not okay, so I'm going to go with that. Here's how I would define impurity. Here's how I'm going to define greed. Here's what I will define as obscenity. And so we just get to, to maintain control, right? We get to maintain that sort of authority, and we get to be the ones to say, this is, I'm just going to go, and I'm going to be the one that says right and wrong. That's exactly what Adam and Eve wanted to do when they took the bite of the apple. Because when you get to be the one that determines right and wrong, you get to be like God, and that's idolatry, right? Or maybe what we do is we, we do find this obsession, we do find this passion, and we just keep going after it, right? And we say, okay, okay, I, I love you, God. I think you're here, but there's this one thing that I just I can't let go of. And so we keep him on the side, but we just keep pursuing it, and it's idolatry, right? That, that is essentially a saying, I don't see you as king. I don't see you as Lord. If you don't see him as king, you cannot be in his kingdom. It's very simple. And so this is a question of the heart, right? Our behavior is going to trip us up, I guarantee it. But where is your heart? Where is its loyalty? What is it truly pursuing? That's the cost, right? And so what we have to do is take this seriously and be willing to make sure that we avoid falling into this trap at all costs. So how do we do that, right? So, so Paul says, don't listen to deceitful and empty words. And I think that's probably where we need to, to also dedicate quite a bit of introspection this morning. Deceitful and empty words. Let me explain it to you this way. The devil will do everything he can to lie to you. That's what he wants to do, is lie. He's a father of lies, and he will not rest, will not stop, to get you to buy into a lie that will lead you from God's path. That's his work. He wants to deceive. So think about some of the ways he deceives us with some of the things that have been mentioned here in this passage. Let's, let's think about sexual immorality again. Okay, here's, here's a narrative that is out there. Right, there is a narrative that is pervasive in our culture, and we see it through images, through advertisements, through TV shows, through movies, through whatever it is that says this is what intimacy should look like. And this is how it's going to be fulfilling. And people buy it. Right? Because the narrative says if you go this way, what you get to do is, is ultimately satisfy any of your desires. Because they're yours. And they're right. So go for it. And whenever there's this voice of opposition that might begin to emerge from scripture or, or from believers or whatever that kind of alternative voice might be, what's, what's culture say? Oh, if you go that way, it's going to be boring. It's going to be oppressive. Right? It's outdated. And so it gets this narrative, don't listen to her. We, we buy into this idea, well, we shouldn't talk about it. It's too embarrassing. It's too private. And so we just choose silence within the church. We buy into a lie. And so people buy into this lie, and it wreaks havoc, right? Because here's what idols do. What idols do in the lie that is presented to us in culture on this issue of sexual immorality is the same lie that's presented on so many other idols. The lie is, just as Andy Crouch said, and we've talked about this before, an idol will say, you know what? I'm going to give you everything 
and it's going to cost you almost nothing. It's going to be cheap, it's going to be good, and it's going to create this tremendous sense of fulfillment. When in reality, in the end, it does the opposite. In the end, what it does is it almost costs you everything, and it gives you almost nothing. It's incredibly unfulfilling. And so what we do is we fall into this trap. You know what we start doing? We start worshiping a created thing rather than the creator. It's idolatry. Let's think about greed for a moment. Let's think about uh, deception on greed. You know, I was thinking about greed and that definition about how it is really this this heart that's willing to take advantage of the neighbor to preserve your own wealth, your own security, your own power. And you, you can't really read that without thinking about the climate that we're in right now. Right, that perhaps one of the greatest examples of greed that we see playing out around us is the question of racism. Right, and just how pervasive it is and how the marginalized and the oppressed of societies throughout human history have been pushed down so people can maintain their own sense of power and their own sense of luxury and comfort. It's, it's, it's our history. Right? You think about the slave industry right, and how that practice was not just some noble pursuit of exploration. While there was that, that, that pursuit of exploring the world was also driven by can we expand more? Can we gain more? And can we do it on the backs of others whom we have already conquered and claimed as our own? That's greed. And so what happens is we see that greed fester and build itself into all of our society. And so we'll go back, and here's what happens. We'll, we'll begin to feel a conviction. We'll go back and we'll celebrate the liberation and the abolition of, of a slave industry. And we'll talk about the Civil War. We'll talk about President Lincoln. We'll talk about all these great things that happened. And we'll hit these highlights of how, how people finally had the right to vote, finally could own property. And we change behavior without changing the heart. And so guess what happens? Racism continues. Greed continues. Right? You, you can give somebody the right to vote, but if you make it difficult for that person and you create all these barriers that prevents them from actually voting because of a racist tendency, right? you can give somebody the right to own a home, but if the person behind the lending institution is racist and comes up with all these restrictions and all these things to keep people in perpetual poverty, you haven't changed anything. Right? We see this take place. Think about education. This is the one that really stuck with me this past week. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Tulsa race riot. Um, I wasn't. I started hearing about it maybe, I don't know, a couple months ago, but hadn't even really looked into it until recently and discovered, if you haven't read up on it, I, I encourage you to do so, but in 1921, there was this horrific riot that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was a focus of the Greenwood District, which was a very affluent African-American neighborhood that existed at that time, even, even referred to at one point as Black Wall Street because of the success and the momentum that that neighborhood was creating. It was, it was nationally renowned. And on one particular occasion, the, the, the tensions that were already prevalent in society because of racism, because of greed, right, began to bubble over. There were these accusations about what an African-American man did to a woman, and, and then the Tulsa Tribune <clears throat> writes this inflammatory article, and these mobs begin to gather at the courthouse. And there are all these exchanges, and then all of a sudden, a, a shot goes off, and the riots go crazy. And the end result of these riots were 35 city blocks being burned in this Greenwood district. 10,000, those are the estimates, 10,000 African-Americans 
left homeless, forced to live in tents to try to rebuild their community. Estimates now, they don't really know how many people died, but they, they believe there are like mass graves that are out there. It could be 300 people. And all the people that were arrested on that night when it occurred were African American. As their community was destroyed, as their community was, was completely oppressed, not one single white person was arrested. Now that is an example of greed in and of itself, but it's not the reason I'm bringing it up to you today. Why I'm bringing it up to you today is because I never heard of it. 1921. Why is it not taught in U.S. history? I was reading up on it this week. Just this year, 2020, 99 years later, it was finally added to Oklahoma history curriculum. So here's what happens. What the devil wants is for the neighbor to hate each other. And so it's going to create these lies to make it happen. And one of the lies is to convince you it's not an issue. Let's not talk about it. Everything's fine. To the point that we can actually bury it for 99 years in history. That's deceptive in empty words. And it leads us into an idolatry. All right, well, I get to stay comfortable. I get to stay in power. I get to stay in privilege. Right? There are so many ways these things can manifest themselves. And so the only way change really begins to happen is when we look within Yes, we need changes in legislation, we need changes in education, we need changes in training, but we need changes of the heart or else it's all for naught. And the church has to be the leader in that regard, which means we have to be willing to stand up and ask not others but ourselves difficult questions about what has really transformed within us. And do we truly see him as king? That's the way towards change. And the church has to lead. Are you willing to lead? Are you willing to ask those sorts of questions? Well, here's, here's where I can hopefully end us with at least a word of hope and perhaps a word of how you can do this in a way to hopefully uplift us this morning despite the weight of the challenges of those questions. Because right? I love the way it's buried within it. I will, I will tell you that somewhat of a preview for the following verses, that that's really where you find hope is this next paragraph of how you can live as children of light. And we're going to get to all that. Just didn't have time to get to it today. But even within verses 3 through 7, despite their heaviness and despite the challenging things that they force us to ask, you get this glimmer that I just absolutely love. Just two words. Rather, thanksgiving. Love. And I love the simplicity of it and the way it can lead us. I was uh, finishing up our vacation in Oklahoma with the family this past week. And I was sitting around talking to my kids. And we love to play those like would you rather games and just crazy question games, crazy scenario games. And I love hearing what a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old is going to say. It's just awesome. And so one of the questions that I had presented to my kids was one I'm sure you probably have heard at some point in your life. But I asked them, I said, okay, if you were deserted on a on an island, and you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would you choose? And they both chose Thanksgiving, which I thought was brilliant, to be honest. I'm like, that's smart, because there's so much variety. You get tired of the mashed potatoes. You go to the ch- turkey. I mean, you got so many options. And it was just kind of a fun, humorous response, especially in June. I'm like, who's thinking of Thanksgiving in June? But my kids were. And so I started thinking, what if that's how we lived? 
What if we lived like every day was Thanksgiving? And I don't mean the menu, as great as that would be. But think about those moments, right, where hopefully many of us can draw upon a memory or a practice or a tradition where we gather with friends, we gather with loved ones, and we are intentionally thankful. And how that changes things. How that changes the way you interact with others. How it changes your relationship with the Lord. To have a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. When we are truly thankful for other people, it means we're seeing them for who they are. We're seeing their value, we're seeing their worth. Thankfulness prevents us from seeing somebody as an object that can help us with our own self-gratification. Right? Thankfulness prevents us from seeing people as an avenue for our own gain. Right? When thankfulness speaks and it, and it fills the room with words, it doesn't tear people down, it builds people up. Thankfulness is powerful. But perhaps most importantly, is not so much what it does in our relationships with others, but what it does with our relationship with the Lord, right? Because true thankfulness anchors us in humility. Gratitude is always mindful that something has been done for you. And what it does is it brings us back to the very essence of the gospel and what has been done for us in Christ Jesus. We are able to see all the beauty all the blessings that exist for us in the heavenly realms through Christ. We see not just grace, not just forgiveness, we see hope, we see power, we see purpose, we see the glorious inheritance of his riches that have been freely offered to you and it should well up with a spirit of gratitude that can't help but burst forth and a desire to share it with others. That's what thankfulness does and that's the way that we lead towards change. That's the way that we begin to move and carry ourselves as ambassadors of this gospel, to be grateful for brothers and sisters, to be grateful for the neighbor, and to be grateful for a God who helps us change our heart, that he might change our behavior as he leads us into eternity. That's the sort of gratitude that we need to be carrying, to be grateful for his mercy each and every day. So though we may be sitting in hard times with difficult contexts, though we may have to confront difficult teachings, may we do so with a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness, knowing that God is the one who leads. Because gratitude keeps us anchored in a posture where we worship the creator over the creation. And may that be our posture today and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we come, Father, with a spirit of confession, knowing, God, that there are many moments where we have given in to impulses, immoralities, impurities, greed. Father, that our words have been less than edifying to others. So many moments, God, and yet you receive us with your profound mercy. So I ask first and foremost, God, that you would cleanse us once more, that you would change our hearts, God, that it might then Yield the fruit that changes our behavior. And help us be your church. Help us be your people that are willing to rise up in a spirit of gratitude and show others that there is so much to be thankful for when we find the riches of Christ. And Father, as we 
Consider that now, Father. I pray that you would help our hearts worship you with the appropriate response that you so richly deserve. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.